Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Love. Today's show is another solo deep dive. Just me, just you. And it is part two of our series about relational ambivalence. Hopefully, you have already listened to the first part of this series. If not, please check out the previous episode in the Reimagining Love podcast feed. It's called Relational Ambivalence. Should I stay or should I go? Part one. In that episode, I helped you bring relational self-awareness to this feeling of stuckness and lack of clarity about what direction you should head in your intimate relationship. If you are all caught up and ready to go, then keep on listening. In the last episode, I talked about what relational ambivalence is. I challenged you to view relational ambivalence as an experience that happens inside of you, but one that plays out between you and your partner. I talked about why relational ambivalence might be more common than ever these days, and then I offered you a perspective on patience. I hope that by breaking this important content into two parts, I've given you some time to digest and reflect on that first part, because today what I'm going to offer you are eight things that you can do that can help you move from stuckness to clarity. By way of preview, these eight strategies are one, couples therapy, two, individual therapy, three, a motivational check-in, four, asking the question, what is blocking my knowing? Five, an empty chairs exercise. Six, exploring your personal epistemology. Seven, practicing devotion to small choices. And eight are some journal prompts for you to take with you. As I said in part one of this series, because relational ambivalence can occur at any stage of relationship development, Some of this content is going to feel more relevant to your situation, and some of it is going to feel less relevant to your situation. So I'm going to remind you that you get to take exactly what feels helpful to you and to leave the rest behind. Reminder also that there is a bodacious and bountiful handout that accompanies this two-episode series. So head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash ambivalence to grab your copy. That link is also in the show notes. And if you are already a newsletter subscriber, you're going to find the handout in your inbox. 
Also, in the show notes for this episode, you are going to find some other resources, including an article that I wrote a while back called, Should I Stay or Should I Go? That article reviews some interesting data that I gathered on Instagram. Okay, so let's get right into our eight strategies. So strategy number one is couples therapy. So your ambivalence about your intimate relationship is not happening in a vacuum. It's arising out of some concern that you're experiencing in the relationship. Is this amount of fighting normal or healthy? Why won't my partner open up to me? Something is feeling off with our sexual connection. I don't know if we want the same things in life. Am I going to be able to get my needs met in this relationship? So any or all of those could be fueling your relational ambivalence. And therefore, couples therapy can help. I am a huge fan of couples therapy. Obviously, I literally am a couples therapist. And I'm a huge advocate for couples therapy. Couples therapy will change your relationship dynamic. Couples therapy is going to help you understand yourselves and each other more deeply, and it's going to help you change how you talk to each other and how you relate to each other. Creating healthier patterns, rituals, and rules of engagement is very likely to help you feel more committed and more hopeful about the viability of the relationship. Couples therapy can help you get unstuck. I advocate for something called a dose-based approach to couples therapy. I really like couples to seek the support of a trained professional early and often. So perhaps a couple does a dose of couples therapy around their first significant commitment milestone, like moving in together or considering getting engaged. And then they come back and they do another dose of couples therapy around the transition to marriage or as they explore whether and when they maybe want to start a family. Transitions tend to kick up a lot of dust within us and in the space between ourselves and our partners, not to mention also within our family systems. So transitions are a great time for a couple to get relationship support. In fact, you may be experiencing relational ambivalence precisely because you are approaching a relationship milestone or a transition. Maybe because one of you wants to approach a relationship milestone, like moving in together or getting married, and the other one isn't so sure. As someone who has been doing couples therapy, you know, for a hot minute, I love it when I get to see couples on and off over a long period of time. However, you certainly don't need to have the same therapist for each dose of your couple's work because different therapists have different approaches to couple's work and different approaches can offer you different benefits. Two final notes before we move on from this first strategy. Note number one, I want you to keep in mind that someone can be a kick-ass individual therapist and a not-so-great couples therapist. And this is because couples Therapy is a specific field of the overall umbrella of psychotherapy, right? So psychotherapy is our big umbrella. Under that big umbrella, there are different kinds of psychotherapists, different kinds of therapists. When you're looking to partner up with a couples therapist and you're looking through, you know, a list of names of therapists, when you find somebody who has the letters LMFT after their name, 
you can rest assured that that person has been trained specifically to work with couples because LMFT stands for Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. But there are social workers, counselors, licensed clinical psychologists like yours truly, who have gone on to receive specialized training to work with couples. It's just that you have to do a little bit of extra vetting if you don't see LMFT. So just make sure that you ask a potential candidate about their training in couples therapy. It's not rude. It's not undermining. You are just being an informed consumer of therapy. So go ahead and ask that question. How are you trained to work with couples? Because it's a worthwhile question. In both of my books, both Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back, you will find additional resources about how to connect with a therapist. Okay, note number two. If the two of you are in a really challenging place and you are, for example, talking pretty openly about divorce or breakup, then rather than traditional couples therapy, you might want to consider something that's called discernment counseling. This approach to couples work was developed by Dr. Bill Doherty, and it's designed for this very situation. It's almost like pre-couples therapy. In traditional couples therapy, the relationship is the client. So the therapist is working on improving the relationship. But this may not be appropriate when one partner is what Doherty calls the, quote, leaning out partner. In that situation, relationship work can feel like pressure. So discernment counseling is a time-limited and a highly strategic approach that is designed to get couples to a place of deciding one of two options, stay together and do couples therapy or break up. So you can find a link for more information about discernment counseling in the show notes. Moving on to strategy number two, individual therapy. Even though we talked in the last episode about how relational ambivalence lives inside of you, but affects and is affected by your relationship dynamic, it can still be really helpful to seek individual therapy to try to figure out whether to stay or go. Working one-on-one with a therapist can help you clarify your thoughts and your feelings. It can help you develop insight into why you're feeling stuck and individual therapy can help you explore your next steps. So in therapy speak, we talk about the presenting problem, the reason that the client is seeking therapy at this time. The presenting problem here would be, I don't know if this relationship is viable or worth it for me. It's a great starting point for some individual therapy work. If you decide to bring your relational ambivalence to an individual therapist, there is some stuff that I really want you to keep in mind. Okay, the first thing is note how I phrased the presenting problem because it was intentional. I framed the presenting problem as, quote, I don't know if this relationship is viable or worth it for me. I did not define the presenting problem as, quote, I don't know if this is the right relationship for me. Nor did I define the presenting problem as, quote, I don't know if the person I'm dating is the one. And I did that because 
those framings about, is this the right relationship? Is this person the one? Those framings are too simplistic. They're too idealized. They're too perfectionistic. Relationships are far too complicated to be diagnosed as a right relationship or a wrong relationship. And the heart of relational self-awareness is becoming better and better at holding shades of gray and sitting with complexity. No one partner, even a really awesome partner, is going to be able to meet every one of your needs. Hillary Clinton told us that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to nurture a grown-up. <laughs> You're always going to have to outsource your needs to friends, to colleagues, to family members, to teammates, to workout buddies. So I do not want your individual therapy to be you and your therapist putting the person you're dating under a microscope and picking them apart, weighing their attributes and their peccadilloes. I want your individual therapy to be an exploration of how you got to the spot, what echoes from your past are being activated in the current dynamic with your partner, and then figuring out what matters most to you. The second thing I want you to keep in mind about individual therapy is that you may very much want your individual therapist to listen to all the facets of your ambivalence and then tell you whether you should stay or go. But you got to remember that a therapist's job is not to tell you what to do, but rather to help you realize the path that is truest to you, to help listen you into a deeper understanding of what makes sense as your next step. Or on the flip side, I've heard this situation as well. You might be actually reluctant to go to individual therapy because you might be afraid that your therapist is going to tell you what to do. And again, it's not a therapist's job to tell you what to do. I want your individual therapist to help you quiet the noise, either the noise around you or the noise inside your head. I want your individual therapist to help you identify and remove the barriers to clarity and to listen you into a deeper kind of knowing. In fact, I get really judgy <laughs> really quickly when I hear stories about individual therapists, especially making sweeping declarations about what people should or should not do in their lives. I cringe at stories of therapists who say things like, nobody should get married before age 30, or he's just not the one, or you have to do what makes you happy. <laughs> This last one actually might feel a little bit confusing for you. I surely want therapists to help their clients move from unhappy to happy, but especially in a highly individualistic culture like the U.S., where I am currently talking to you from, we end up acting like there's a binary choice. Either you make yourself happy or you sacrifice yourself for the sake of the relationship. And this mindset may be keeping us from seeing a middle ground in which we cultivate more happiness for ourselves within the context of the existing relationship. It's also just a really kind of ineffective thing to say, right? If you knew what would make you happy, you would have done it by now. This whole topic of individual therapy for clients who are experiencing relational ambivalence is so important to me that I spend a lot of my time teaching and training clinicians, therapists, 
about how to work well, how to bring relational self-awareness to this kind of work. So in fact, if you are a therapist or a coach who's listening to this episode, I want you to know that I created an entire e-course with Psychotherapy Networker that is called Loving Bravely, Helping Clients Who Are Single, Dating, and Single Again. And you can find a link to that e-course in the show notes. The bottom line is this. Individual therapy is so intimate. Your individual therapist is your confidant, your advocate, your ally. Your therapist is in your corner and they very likely love being in your corner. Trust me, I can get fiercely protective of my individual therapy clients. But it's also the job of your individual therapist to keep your relationship in mind, even though they are sitting with just you. Your individual therapist is getting one side of the story told from your perspective. One of the founders of the field of family therapy was a Hungarian-American psychiatrist named Ivan Bozermeni Naj. And he had this term he coined called multilateral partiality. He advocated for therapists to hold the interests of all parties in mind, to see a problem or a dynamic from multiple perspectives. Your individual therapist is doing their job if they ask you about how your role in your relationship dynamic might be making things worse or keeping the relationship with your partner stuck and unhappy, even if that might be hard or unpleasant or challenging or confronting for you to hear. And then finally, I want your therapist to assess your indirect system. What does that mean? Your indirect system means the people who are not in the room with you and your therapist, but who are nonetheless shaping and affecting your decision-making process. The people in your life who are perhaps casting a vote on this question of whether you stay or go. So this might be your mom who wants you to stay in the relationship for security or this might be your newly divorced college roommate who is talking to you about how amazing it is to have your first kiss once again. So who else in your life is casting a vote? Your individual therapist needs to know what other forces might be fueling your inertia or your stuckness or influencing you around your decision making. And your individual therapist might help you ask for some clearer boundaries with your mom or with your friend so that you can hear your own voice. Strategy number three, motivation check. For an intimate relationship to take root and grow, there needs to be commitment. Commitment means that you can reliably trust that I was here yesterday, I am here today, and I'm going to be here tomorrow. Without commitment, it's impossible to cultivate the yummy qualities that we want in our intimate relationship. Vulnerability, silliness, trust, the ability to let your guard down. But commitment has two faces. Face number one is I'm here because I want to be here. Face number two is I'm here because I said I would be here. There's like this duality of desire and duty, of want and obligation of choice and promise. 
And the ability to sit with ease in that duality is a marker of a thriving relationship. Happy couples can hold both their love of their partner and of the relationship right alongside their sense of responsibility and obligation to their partner and to the relationship. The responsibility feels more like a source of grounding than a prison. So my third suggestion here for you is that you take some time to explore your motivation for being in the relationship. Why are you here? Why are you in? What's keeping you in? Psychologists who study motivation break motivation down into two categories. They talk about approach motivations and avoidance motivations. Approach motivations are about us choosing a thing that we want. Avoidance motivations are about us avoiding something that we don't want or something that we fear or dread. So approach motivations for being in a relationship sound like this. I value time together. I like what we're building together. I admire my partner as a person. I feel connected and valued in this relationship. Avoidance motivations for being in a relationship sound like this. I'm here because we have so much history together. I'm here because I do not want to download a dating app. I'm here because it would just take so much work to break up. I'm here because I don't want to face the judgment of my family and my friends. So check in with yourself. What is the blend of motivations inside of you? A healthy relationship does not rest on having 100% approach motivations and 0% avoidance motivations, but we certainly want the scales to be tipping in that direction. If you are being driven primarily by avoidance motivations, I want you to figure out what needs to change within yourself and with your partner so that you can start to tap into and touch more of those approach motivations. Or I want you to consider other options because it's hard to feel happy and hopeful if you are being fueled pretty exclusively by avoidance motivations. If you want to supercharge this practice of exploring your why, you can ask yourself this gut check that comes from my friend Mark Groves in his TED Talk from a few years ago. His TED Talk, by the way, is linked in the show notes. Mark shared the story of him calling off his engagement a number of years ago. And one of his gut check alarm clock moments was asking himself the question, can someone else love my fiance better? That's a big one, right? And it's tricky. It's an abstract question, but I offer it to you as just a point of inquiry in this realm of like, why am I here? What's keeping me here? Okay, my love. Strategy number four is asking yourself the question, what is blocking my knowing? So in other episodes of Reimagining Love, you have heard me talk about constraint questions. Therapists love constraint questions. Rather than asking, why did you lie, for example, a therapist will instead ask a constraint question. What kept you from telling the truth? Do you hear the difference? Why did you lie versus what kept you from telling the truth? 
a constraint question starts from the assumption that we are innately oriented towards health, but stuff gets in our way. So let's apply the constraint question to the problem of relational ambivalence. Rather than asking yourself, why am I so stuck? See what happens if you instead ask yourself, what is blocking my knowing? Let me say it again. Rather than asking, why am I so stuck? Ask instead, what is blocking my knowing? This constraint question starts from the assumption that you are capable of knowing, that you are a trustworthy source of guidance in your own life, but something is getting in your way. See what bubbles up into your awareness when you ask this different question. Identifying what is blocking your knowing is a powerful first step towards shifting it. What is blocking your knowing is going to be incredibly unique to you and to your situation. But here are a few possibilities of what might be blocking your knowing. The first one, something that blocks our knowing is something I see all the time with my college students and my graduate students. Sometimes what blocks our knowing is confusion and self-doubt that we are actually at a place in our lives to be making such life-altering decisions. Sometimes we doubt our ability to choose well for ourselves because we just don't feel old enough or wise enough yet. We're confused about how are we possibly at a point in our lives to make this big of a commitment. It's like a developmental reckoning of sorts. This may be especially strong if you grew up in a family that did a lot of top-down leadership, where you were told in ways large and small, we know what's best for you more than you know what's best for you. Another possibility of what may be blocking your knowing is just plain old fear. Some people stay stuck because when they imagine ending the relationship, they are hit with a wave of fear about being single. They worry about what their family and friends will say. They worry they won't find another relationship. And although there are certainly no easy fixes for fear, I do know that it is so much easier to do something that is scary when we are able to trust ourselves to trust ourselves to do hard things, to trust ourselves to pull in resources when things are difficult. It's also so much easier to do something that's scary when we're able to trust the universe, when we're able to remember even just a little bit or even just for a brief moment that we don't have to be in charge of our every step, that we can surrender even little bits of control to forces that are bigger than us that can guide us, that can hold us. So a little bit of that faith or that sense of we're connected to things that are bigger than us, that we're connected with all of humanity. So that can help us kind of just release even just edges of our fear. Then the third one I will just mention is that sometimes what blocks our knowing is unhealed trauma, untended to trauma. Trauma is about the long-term impact of overwhelming experiences, those things we go through that are too much, that are too soon, and that we don't have time or space to process. So one impact of trauma is feeling disconnected from ourselves, including disconnected from our inner knowing. 
in addressing unhealed trauma, we learn how to tune into ourselves and how to trust our inner world. And from that place of deeper connection with ourselves, it becomes infinitely easier to trust in our decision-making. Strategy number five, the empty chairs exercise. I'm going to go ahead and predict that this next one, the empty chairs exercise, is going to land more deeply for those who identify as creative than it is going to land for those who identify as logical. So just bear with me. The quick backstory here is that some branches of psychotherapy use something called chair work. For example, my dear friend, Dr. Rhonda Goldman, who is one of the developers of emotion-focused therapy, she uses chair work to help her clients do deep inner healing. For example, to address self-criticism or to address suppressed emotions or to address unfinished business from one's family of origin. And FYI, we've linked Dr. Rhonda Goldman's newest book, which is a training manual for therapists. We link that in the show notes. So formal chair work is done in therapy with the guidance and direction of a clinician. But I want to talk you through a little bit of like a do-it-yourself practice that's inspired by chair work and one that you can do in the comfort of your own home and that might offer you some insights that might feel illuminating and clarifying for you. So you're going to want to do this exercise when you have about 30 minutes or so and when you can take some quiet time and space for yourself. You're going to need a journal and then something to write with, and you're going to need three chairs. If you want to set a bit more of a scene, you can light a candle, you can play some quiet music that you love, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to sit down in a chair and you're going to put two chairs in front of you, forming a triangle, okay? And then you're going to take some time and just get quiet, quiet your mind, Close your eyes if that feels okay. Take some deep breaths, sort of settle yourself in. And then I want you to imagine that you put the part of you that wants to stay in the relationship in one chair. And you imagine that you put the part of you that wants to exit the relationship in the other chair, right? So you're sitting in the one chair and perhaps the chair kind of off to the corner to your left is the chair where you imagine the part of you that wants to stay is in that chair. And the other chair, perhaps the one that's sort of heading off to your right, in that chair, you're imagining putting the part of you that wants to leave. So first, you're going to kind of orient yourself to the part of you that wants to stay. And you're going to just imagine being with that part. Get to know that part a little bit better. What does that part look like? Is there a color? Is there a shape? Is there a size? How old is that part? Does that part have a name? After you visualize that part for a few moments, dialogue with it, either out loud or inside your head. You're going to just converse with that part of you that wants to stay in the relationship. And here are some questions that you can ask of that part. What do you want me to understand about you? What do you want from the relationship with the partner? 
What are you worried about? What do you want me to remember? How can I best advocate for you? Right? So it's you in conversation with this part of you, the part of you that wants to stay. And you're asking questions. You're being deeply curious. Who is this part of you? What is this part of you motivated by? What does this part of you want to understand and remember and keep in mind about this part's interests and fears and hopes and worries? Okay. And then when you're ready, shift your body and orient yourself to the other part of you, the part of you that wants to leave, right? So now you are focusing on that other part, the part that's in the, in the empty chair off to your right. So orient to the part of you that wants to leave and then take some time to get to know that part a little bit better. What does that part of you look like? Does it have a color, a shape, a size? How old is that part of you? Can you give that part a name? And then finally, like you did last time, dialogue either out loud or inside your head with this part of you, the part of you that wants to leave the relationship. And again, here are some questions that you could ask that part of you. What do you want me to understand about you? What do you want from this relationship? What are you worried about? What do you want me to remember? How best can I advocate for you? When you're done with that whole exercise, take some time to journal or to draw or to meditate about what you experience. I love the idea of you writing about it because writing is so darn integrating. And because this might be an emotionally evocative activity, make sure that you take some time to practice a little bit of aftercare. Get yourself some water or tea, get some fresh air, maybe take a shower, move your body. See if you can make it so that you don't have to just rush right from this activity into your next thing. And then for sure, for sure, for sure, reach out to me and tell me how this goes for you if and when you do it. I would love to hear your feedback. Feedback is like my love language. So bring it on. All right. Strategy number six, personal epistemologies. So epistemology is a fancy schmancy term that comes to us from the world of philosophy And it's a word that refers to how we know what we know. Epistemology is about our process of knowing. It's our theory of knowledge. And my hot take is that I think that each of us has a personal epistemology, a unique process that helps us reach our knowing. It's sort of implicit inside of you, but something that perhaps you aren't aware of explicitly, like what your personal epistemology is. And I submit to you that I think some of us are thinkers, some of us are feelers, and some of us are sensors. So I think there's three personal epistemologies, the thinkers, the feelers, and the sensors. Now, some of us for sure might be a blend. Some of us perhaps are thinkers when it comes to one domain of our lives, like work, but perhaps feelers when it comes to another domain of our lives like dating. I also suspect that some of us might have 
one personal epistemology during one chapter of our lives and another epistemology during another phase of our lives, right? So our epistemology might change and evolve over time. I'm going to talk you through these three personal epistemologies, the thinkers, the feelers, and the sensors in a little bit more detail. For each of these, I'm going to give you a description. I'm going to offer you some risks and some benefits of each epistemology. And just so you know, you can receive this personal epistemology information and a whole lot more information from this relational ambivalent series and a lovely handout when you head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash ambivalence. And newsletter subscribers are going to find this handout in um, the newsletter. Okay, thinkers. You are a thinker if you value logic and linearity. You're a thinker if you feel comforted by making a pro-con list. You are a thinker if you make if-then statements or if you assess the risks and benefits of each option. The benefits of being a thinker is that you can feel comforted that you made a decision that makes sense. The risk of being a thinker is that you are potentially missing some important data that comes from your body, right? Thinking is a cognitive process and it can be a bit cut off from emotion or bodily cues. Okay, feelers. You are a feeler if you like to follow your heart. You are a feeler if you are guided towards what makes you happy and away from what makes you sad or scared. The benefit, I think, of being a feeler is that emotions are data. So feelers are following something that is arising from your experience of the relationship, right? from a felt sense of the relationship. The risk of being a feeler is that emotions can reflect the stress of the situation, right? The stress of the stuckness, the stress of the confusion, rather than some capital T truth about the relationship. The other risk, I think, of being a feeler is that strong emotions require containment, but they can also lead to impulsive decision-making. The third epistemology is the sensors. You're a sensor if you imagine a path forward and then you notice what shifts inside your body. You're a sensor if you move away from constriction and toward ease. You are a sensor if you like to follow your gut. The benefits of being a sensor is that you you're tapping into your inner wisdom, a place that is, we hope, uh, steadier than the discomfort of the present moment. And another benefit is that your ability to be guided by what you sense inside of your body reflects and affirms a level of trust in yourself. So it becomes this you know, virtuous cycle where the more you sense something inside of yourself and you're guided by that, the more you convey the message that you are trustworthy and affirm that. The risk of being a sensor is that unless you have 
practices that help you quiet down and tune in to yourself. It can be hard to tease apart what is anxiety and what is a felt sense. Identifying your personal epistemology, whether you're a thinker, whether you're a feeler, whether you're a sensor, can help you maximize your gifts and can help you compensate for your limitations. Strategy number seven, devotion to small choices. One of the side effects of feeling stuck is that you can start to feel down on yourself. You can take your relational ambivalence as reflective of a character flaw rather than of a difficult crossroads. So I want to invite you to do something that I call devotion to small choices. You make thousands of itty bitty choices all day, every day. Green smoothie or oatmeal for breakfast. Wear this blazer to work or that one. Go for a run or head to kickboxing. Take your mom out to lunch or have her over for dinner. So pay attention to the small choices that you are making all day, every day. Breathe in these little choices. Like notice them, code them, affirm them, affirm the little choices. When you catch yourself making a small choice, say, perhaps even out loud, perhaps even while looking at yourself in the mirror, say to yourself, I am someone who knows how to choose. I can stand at a crossroads and take the next step. Now, obviously, making a choice about a green smoothie is qualitatively different from making a choice about the status of an intimate relationship. I'm not equating those two, but I am saying that your willingness to practice devotion to small choices reminds you that you have agency, that you have power, and that you are worthy of trusting yourself. Okay, last one, strategy number eight. This strategy is just going to be a series of journal prompts or questions that you can bring into a meditation session or into a journaling session or into a therapy session if you'd like. These journal prompts are also in the handout that you can grab at www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash ambivalence. Or if you're already in the newsletter, you will find the handout in your inbox. So here are the journal prompts. Number one, what would I choose? If I had an unshakable faith in my ability to choose. Number two, what do I fear or feel that the choice to stay in this relationship says about me as a person? Three, what do I fear or feel that the choice to leave this relationship says about me? Four, if I choose to stay, what I want to remember is dot, dot, dot. Five, if I choose to leave this relationship, what I want to remember is dot, dot, dot. Six, what I know to be true about myself is dot, dot, dot. There you have it. Eight strategies for helping you resolve relational ambivalence. Eight strategies for helping you answer the question, should I stay or should I go? We made it. 
Through our two-episode exploration, we covered a lot of ground, and I hope that you will let these episodes settle for you. I hope these episodes are going to help you feel clearer and more confident in whatever you choose next. So thank you for listening, and I will see you here again next week on Reimagining Love. Be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.